You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. This episode of The Projection Booth is brought to you by Ovid.tv. Ovid.tv is the independent streaming home for people who want to watch foreign films, thought-provoking documentaries, and art house gems that are impossible to find anywhere else. For just $6.99 a month, you'll have access to a cornucopia of films to watch anytime and on any device. Vanity Fair calls Ovid.tv a fantastic streamer for people with a taste for foreign, political, and otherwise beyond the American mainstream films. Discover art house titles, documentaries, works of global cinema all in one place. Start streaming at www.ovid.tv. Highlights include Tony Manero from the Oscar-nominated Chilean filmmaker Pablo Larraín, director of the hit biopics Jackie and Neruda, as well as the summer favorite Emma. Tony Manero is a terrifying drama and social commentary movie rolled into one. From now until October 21st, 2020, save 50% off your first three months of Ovid.tv. Just head on over to www.ovid.tv and sign up with the coupon code PROJECTION at checkout. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Good to be here. September 2020 continues with a look at Uri Hertz's Morgiana. Released in 1972, the film stars Eva Yanzurova as both Victoria and Clara Tragan, two sisters who are driven apart by their father's will and the jealousy of Clara by Victoria. We've talked about Hertz in the past, including his incredible film, The Cremator. And as for as subversive as that film was, it was actually Morgiana that got him into more trouble. We'll talk about that and more, including spoilers, as we go along. So, Kat, when was the first time you saw Morgiana, and what did you think? It's another second-run DVD. <laughs> you need to start paying me commission. Whenever they put this out on DVD, which was quite a while ago now, I think, I kind of want to say 2009, but I'm not sure. Anyway, it was total blind buy, and I really just liked the cover. I thought, that looks a bit trippy. This says everything about me. I just love it, obviously. I love gothic stuff, and I love the really weird, kind of decadent gothic. And this is like the perfect example of that type of gothic, which doesn't actually end up on film a lot. It's just been one of my favourite Czech films ever since. And how about you, Ben? Well, when I was working with the Czech and Slovak Film Festival of Australia, we did a Uri Hertz uh, retrospective, and they double featured it with uh, oil lamps, which obviously is a perfect double because it has the same lead actress and also features Peter Sepek, who is also in 
uh, Morgiana. Now, I missed that screening, but several people I knew went to it and then kept telling me I had to watch it. So, like Cat, instead of seeing it in 35mm, I saw it on the second run DVD. I wasn't quite sure what to make of it because I I definitely appreciated the same kind of elements that Cat saw in it. But it's a film you kind of, you have to really see it twice before you can start to get your head around it because it is, it's a, it's a unique one. I remember seeing this on VHS forever ago, and this was actually a title that we used to sell on superhappyfun.com during my dark days as a bootlegger and managed to, I think I had a shitty VHS and then eventually a DVD of this came out before the second run one. This was actually coming out in Czechoslovakia and I helped marry the subtitles from one version to another. Again, I just have this kind of weird relationship with the movie where I saw it, but it didn't really register with me because I was there translating all of the, or not translating, taking the transcribing the subtitles from the VHS onto an SRT file and adding them to the DVD because that's what I do for fun. Um, <laughs> the thrilling world of post-production. <laughs> oh, it is, it's fantastic. And boy, oh boy, do I get upset if, whenever I see like misspellings or, uh, you know, grammatical errors inside of subtitles. But thank goodness that the second run DVD of this looks fantastic and the subtitles pristine. You're right. This is, it's so trippy and this plays so much into so many of the themes that I'm always talking about on the podcast. I mean, you know, I'm always about doubling and mirrors and all of this. And this film has that in spades and talk about gorgeous. It just looks so good. And I think this was the first time that Hertz has worked with, uh, Yaroslav Kuchera. And he initially was supposed to work with him way back when they did um, the Pearls the of the Pearls Deep. The Pearls of the Deep. Yeah, and he was snubbed because he wasn't Famu, because he was the outsider. That, that was hilarious to me when I found that out, that the, the, the Yaroslav had done all of Pearls of the Deep. They'd gone, nah, nah, not do it hurts, because he was from the, uh, what was the, the Academy of uh, Puppetry? He studied, yeah, he studied puppetry with Swankmire, and before that he, did, he studied production design. And he wanted to actually go to FAMU and study film, but they were like, no, you can't do that, like the state or whatever. You can't have funding to do that. So as part of that whole new wave, he was like always the outsider. And then he was a Slovakian Jew, so he wasn't part of the whole Prague scene, even though then he started to work there. So he got into film. We talked about this recently, me and Mike and Sam Deegan, on transport from paradise he got in just by hassling zibnik brinich to kind of give him a break so it's weird with hertz even though he wasn't didn't seem particularly bitter i I think he had like a bit of a thing with the new waivers because they treated him really badly in a way kind of snubbed him and then by the time he comes to do morgiana and obviously he's done the cremator and he's acclaimed then Kuchera is like oh yeah I totally want to work on this <laughs> but it just shows the measure of him that he saw he was the best person for the job and so he just dropped his ego and said no you know because he knew he would be the what he wanted experimental um it just goes to show you he wasn't up his own ass old hurts 
Admittedly, he he did uh, in an interview. He did say that the the episode that he was meant to be in Pearls of the Deep, the junk shop, instead of being in Pearls of the Deep, which didn't get much of a showing in any cinemas in uh, much of Czechoslovakia, his short was put before a German film that was really popular. So his film actually got more seen. So I think it, it does. He was dropped from Pearls of the Deep because they thought it was too long, so he was kind of kicked out of that as well. So, you know, the Czech, manif- the Czech New Wave manifesto film. It does ease the ego a little bit when you know that your film has been seen by more of your countrymen than the uh, film you got booted out of. And, and I, I had only recently seen Pearls of the Deep, and i got to say, I think the junk shop is uh, quite a bit better than anything in Pearls of the Deep, so I think he probably had that on his side for feeling good as well. Watching Pearls of the Deep, which is is for the most part quite a, a straightforward film visually, there's not a lot of uh, uh, Yaroslav's real like showiness on display. But of course, he he did uh, Daisies and Diamonds of the Night, which are two of the most unbelievably striking visual films, not just of the sixties, but of the, the whole twentieth century. Well, he was married to Vera Hitilova at the time, and then they kind of broke up, I think, in the early seventies. So he's on, he's like basically there, isn't he? On all the really experimental, especially Vera's. Did he do Free of Paradise as well? I think she, she, he did her first short. You know, he's like part of that whole movement and they were married. And then everything had sort of broken down by the time you get to Morgiana. I love Hertz because he's like the ultimate outsider. And then he, as he said in that interview referencing, which I think is on the second run DVD, he he wasn't like really a political filmmaker either. He just loved gothic and fairy tales and horror. And he's the closest thing that you get to a Czech horror director because they didn't make horror films, just like Soviet Union. There's like no horror films um, in Czechoslovakia, no horror films in Soviet Union cinema. It's more fantasy-based. And he used fantasy, he used the fairy tale to make his own horror or the closest thing to it. So... It's not like our horror, although he's obviously aware of it. It comes from this place. Uh, one of my passions, obviously, is Gothic. And you get a certain strain of Gothic that is Eastern European. And it's a bit like the French strain of Gothic. Where it's not like our British or European Gothic that's very formal. You know, the Bram Stoker, the Mary Shelley, just very formal, straight narratives. Uh, with the Eastern European stuff, it's surreal. Uh, look at something like Valerie in A Week of Wonders is a perfect example. comes from a book from that same movement. It's very surreal. The double is a thing that comes up in it constantly in, in Russian Gothic, another Eastern European Gothic. And it's just so weird and surreal. So I think if you come to Morgiana without that understanding, and it's always short stories. This is based on a story by Alexander Grin, Jesse and Morgiana. Jesse's very surreal, very strange, almost like mood pieces. They're nothing like the gothic that we're used to from Universal and Hammer or from those classic books. But if you understand that, this is one of the most perfect examples of that kind of gothic on film. I think John Roland got close to it as well. Um, and John Roland, someone who's also really surreal. But you don't see a lot of examples of it in film, and that really upsets me. I know it's hard. It's hard to translate it, though, because a lot of it is just mood and surrealism, and there's not really much of a narrative 
So I just think this film is perfect for that because I really haven't seen that many examples of it in cinema, like in gothic cinema, in horror cinema, because it, it, like I said, it's so hard to translate. And Hertz came from a background where he loved fiction. He was like a very literary person, but also he was into art. Like with this, he brings in the um, influence of Gustav Klint, who I love. He's one of my favourite painters, and he brings that in. And so he wasn't really like the a lot of the new wave directors who were very politically motivated. He was obsessed with what he was obsessed with, uh, literature, painting, music. You see all that come together in Morgiana, and it's just it's perfect. I think the problem is, though, a lot of people come to it without that reference, and they get like I love in the interview you said he took it to America and they didn't realize it was the same actress <laughs> they got really confused they thought it was two different women and because they didn't know her but yeah just without that frame of reference I guess it's it can be slightly I don't know disorientating maybe or just like what is this this is strange but I mean as you said earlier Ben uh before we started recording your friend saw it and was like, I don't know what this is, but I love it. I think that is the response a lot of people have to it. Like they haven't seen anything like it before, but they, they just love it because it's so much. It's beautiful. It's experimental. The colors and just, and the music and everything is just, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is, it is one of those difficulties where you, you, it's almost like the, the, if you're a Texas Chainsaw Massacre person and you watch Eaten Alive, and you're like, oh, well, it's clear that it's the same filmmaker, but they're so drastically different in styles that they're totally, they're coming from polar opposites in how they're addressing it, where one is very much a, from a more realist. And, you know, you look at um, Hertz's first couple of films and these black and white, stark, uh, leaving aside the, the Limping Devil, but Silent Cancer and Junk Shop and Cremator um, feel much more like they've come from the social realist side. They're black and white. They feel like they're in a real lived reality. And then if you've come from the Cremator to this, it's, yeah, it's, it's so stark different that while still capturing that same black gothic humor and darkness and you're still looking at going like i, I it's there's we're, we're staring into an abyss but i don't know what the abyss is here <laughs> <laughs> and, and it is like it, it i in re-watching this recently it was the first film i watched as i then went and because i when i saw the cremator originally i had never seen any other hertz films and then i think beauty and the beast was the next film i saw and then morgiana and that was a big part of why i was like i don't quite know how to process this film and it took going and watching seven or eight of his other films before i came back to morgiana and was like ah okay i think i get it now and i think that is part of his it's not just that he was an outsider because of all of the things you mentioned but of all the czech filmmakers he i think is the hardest to pin down he yeah. there's definitely consistencies once you've seen enough but even his consistencies he approaches from quite different perspectives well, he has no real signature in in any sort of, like you say, his early films, like Sign of Cancer, it's quite straightforward. He gets a bit experimental on the cremator, especially with that fisheye lens, which he uses a lot in this. 
But every single one of his films, apart from perhaps Beauty and the Beast and The Ninth Heart, because they were made back to back, they are all different because he seemed to go into every project just wanting to experiment. And the thing that pulls them together is this darkness, his just his fascination with very dark themes because, you know, he was a, a Slovakian Jew. He was in a concentration camp with his mother in the war. You know, he'd seen a lot of real darkness. And he also really understood folklore and fairy tales, that those original fairy tales, they're scary. They're not, like, look at Little Red Riding Hood. It's about cannibalism. Or the original Cinderella, one of the stepsisters, cuts off her toes to fit into the shoe or Hansel and Gretel, you know, kids being eaten alive. They're scary. They're not, especially when you look at the Eastern European ones where they have like stories about, you know, if you mess around, you're going to get eaten by a wolf. Like they tell this to little kids and he got that and he, and he brought back that kind of scary sense of the fairy tale not the disney-fied ones that we <laughs> that we grew up on in the west these are the real deal things it's a darkness that he was drawn to in all of his films but if you look at them they all look very different like all of them um whereas some of the other czech new wave directors you could just tell their films by looking at them and hertz wasn't like that there's, there's definitely watch if you can watch the uh, find and see um, um, sweet games of summer. It is a transitional piece, but he, where he said that you know the creator was much more an expressionist work, and then it's as uh, sweet games of summer or sweet games of late summer is is based on the look of Renoir's paintings and is very impressionistic. And so you can see that transition of him moving away from that social realism and going more into where this kind of gothic vibe and the fairy tale look. But I think one of the really interesting things that I came away from his films was, especially in like the fairy tales, that often the evil is kind of misplaced or misdirected. It's the people don't actually recognize where the evil is coming from. And the cremator also does this as well. That it's, it's the, the, you know, the, in Beauty and the Beast, you've got that, oh, the beast is evil. Oh, the forest is evil. All this, all this darkness and everything. But it's like, no, it's the, the humans, it's the thieves at the beginning who slaughter everyone. And then it's the, the sisters in the home who are greedy and destroying everything and not caring for the father that we displace and put our projections of what is evil onto other things and completely mistake it, which it does happen in this film where you've got this, you know, the, the projections of Victoria onto her sister where she's like she is very much the gothic queen and she's melancholic and she has all this darkness but she's projecting all of these things outwards like blaming everything else for her lack it's quite interesting how i think like the, i think this is where the you know when you watch um i think one of the big differences is, is much like spunkmeyer was different like you when you watch a spunkmeyer film um because i watched the the uh the flat which you hurts axing because i know you hurts actually originally wanted to be an actor but was told that uh he didn't have a good enough look to ever for anybody to ever want to hire him no he did he did he was an actor yeah oh yeah he did he did, he did do a lot of acting, but he wouldn't eat. He, he, he originally, when he was studying, he tried to go for an apprenticeship in acting and they were like, no, nah, nobody will want to use you. You look weird. <laughs> to paraphrase. And I thought he had a fantastic look. I love the way that he looks with that big aquiline nose and just he's got such striking features. 
I love it when he turns up in things. In the Ninth Heart, when he he's got a cameo. Oh now. yeah, it's so good. Um, and I always cheer if I see it. He's not in all of his films, but if he pops up, it's like because he is really distinctive. Yeah, um, but he's wonderful. The, the way that Sfunkmeyer shoots actors is the same way he shoots his objects. Like in a Sfunkmeyer film, everything is an object. Everything is objectified. It is like actually pure cinema because it's all totally separated from any kind of physical reality while everything being super physical. And Hertz doesn't quite have that. But when I found out that he came from puppetry, it made sense because – his relation to objects is quite different. And watching all of his films, it's like Ferret Vampire, which is, you know, about a vampire car. It's not Christine or the car. You know, the car isn't evil. It's what people do with it that is evil. It's how people interact with it and abuse it that's evil. It's in the cremator, the furnaces aren't evil. It's the people who use it again. And I feel like this very much comes from, you know, his experience of the Second World War and the Holocaust. And, you know, so many art movements grew out of the reaction to modernity was meant to be this great and wonderful utopia. You know, at the beginning of oil lamps even starts with, you know, New Year's and them saying 1900, the next hundred years will fix everything for humanity. <laughs> it's like, oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> but there was, there was such a, a turn against modernity because these great utopias technologies had been turned to just apocalyptic death machines and so many of his films either deal with this directly or indirectly and i even find that in morgiana the way that she deals with the the objects in her life like the bottle the little bottle of poison when she's that she poisons people with that it's and the fates as well like the 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 way that that she displaces that to boil it down it's like we have this tendency to believe that objects or structures have an inherent ethical system and Hertz constantly denies that. It would be like saying, oh, well, you know, my puppet is inherently evil, so it's always going to do evil things. It's like, no, the puppeteer that's pulling its strings is the evil one who's doing this. And that's very much present in the cremator. And I think in this as well, because she is often, Victoria is constantly displacing, blaming others or pushing things away and denying it. And even her act that when she's trying, you know, you can read her destruction of the poison bottle as being a, a destroying the evidence, but you can also equally see it as her trying to distance herself from the object that has caused this. When we open, you know, her father has died. He's given all of the, the best things to the sister. And then, you know, she's trying to get the attention of the young Mason and he's not interested in her breasts. And so she's blaming, oh, father's ruined this for me. Oh, the, that guy's ruined that for me. And then she goes and sees the old, you know, the, 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 the old seer and is laying out the tarot cards and, Tarot decks are open to interpretation. Yes, it does look very negative, and she takes it in a negative light. But those cards aren't inherently negative or inherently evil. She chooses to take it in a negative way and therefore chooses to try and poison her sister, which then she then destroys the bottle because she perceives this thing as being something that has helped cause her to commit evil. 
And it's so many times along the way, as you can see this, you know, even down to the finale, there's so many objects involved in this of how she's trying to play things out to gain sympathy and displace things away from herself. And Hertz again and again returns to this of being like, no, even in Sign of the Crab, astrology, the, the tarot deck, the, the furnaces, these are all tools. These are a way that we use and understand our world and we bring the ethics of good or evil to them. Them on themselves are just something for us to use. I love that Victoria is so curious about things, I guess, because, and we haven't said this yet, Morgiana, the titular Morgiana is a cat and we get so many things from Morgiana's POV which I love the cat cam it's wonderful isn't it Victoria is kind of feline in that she is just so curious about things she is always looking to see what's going to happen with this poison you know I poisoned my sister but I really want to see how this works like she hears about the, her sister having this unquenchable thirst so what's she going to do she's going to poison this dog and see what happens with that. Oh, look at the dog is really thirsty. Oh, shit. The little kid is drinking out of this. Oh, same the bowl. kid. <laughs> you just know that's <laughs> going to happen as soon as you see the kid in the shop. She looks kind of feline as well, though, doesn't she? Like her makeup is far more exaggerated than when she's Clara, who's kind of sweeter and softer. She looks feline in the way she observes a lot of the time like looking out the window and watching people we see her just observing situations and people a lot of the time and she does have this sort of feline look about her which i really love i'm not saying cats are evil i love cats but this is deliberate on hertz's part because it's set at the turn of the century which is another thing i love about the costumes because again when it comes to the gothic films you tend to get the more Victorian era with the big crinolines and everything. Uh, and this is turn of the century, so they've got the the different gowns. It's a very, very specific look. And it's only really John Rolland's fascination that I've seen that used in as well. But they didn't have that really exaggerated make Like, she's got crazy makeup, Victoria, with the eyes and everything. It's like she it looks like she's got cat's eyes, so that's... I mean, I don't think he was going for historical accuracy. It was like Roland and Fascination. It's just set in a different universe where they happen to wear their, those clothes. Possibly the original poster, but there's the poster, I said it to you earlier, Mike, where the, 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 the Morgiana, the cat, is at the forefront, foreground, and has these huge blue eyes, and above it is Victoria with also matching huge blue eyes. And so there's very much that pairing there. And early on in the film, there's the scene where... We've got the association of, of Victoria and the cat, but we've also got Clara and the parrot in the cage. And there, this is like a, a, especially like maybe I'm reading this as, as a goth, but <laughs> the, the perception that the bright, happy person is less than and the dark, grim person perceives reality as it actually is. And so you get that association, oh, well, the cat is free and wanders and actually sees things, as you were saying, cat is watching and perceives, whereas the happy person lives in the gilded cage and doesn't have to worry and isn't aware of things and is just looked after. And that is part of what stirs that antagonism between the two of them. 
It goes back to the Dublin, isn't it? Because it's, I mean, it's a big Gothic thing, the Gothic double. There seems to be like a big trend in this Eastern European Gothic for the double. And I, I'm really sorry, I can't remember the names of the authors, but I've got a few volumes of Russian Gothic tales. And there's one where this guy falls in love with this mannequin of this twin. And he searches the world for the other twin. But they're like, they send him out of his mind. He starts to imagine that they want him to do stuff. And he goes sort of crazy over these two mannequins and the twins that were behind them. And there's another story in one of those books that a woman's world gets taken over by a reflection. So she starts to notice that her reflection in the mirror is another entity who eventually sucks her into the mirror and takes her place. So it seems to be like a the way it's used in in that realm, it seems, and I'm not saying gothic dualism and doubling isn't amazing when it's done in a more, you know, traditional way. I love all all those books, like Dr. Jack or Mr. Hyde is the, the probably the, the biggest one. Or you get somebody who's actual two split personalities. But the way they use it in the Eastern European one is just so imaginative and, and weird and, and just, I think a lot darker and a lot scarier. I used to be scared of reflections when I was a kid. <laughs> and that mirror thing, when I first read that mirror story, I was horrified. You know, the fact that your doppelganger could be. So it seems to be in that same realm. But he uses the twins, but then he uses the animals as the doubles as well. So it's like working on all these different levels, but so much of the double in there. But then again, not used in a way that we would just expect in a like more Western Gothic. He's doing it in a much more surreal way. And we've got the theme of schizophrenia in there as well and all the hallucinations. It's not just doubling. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of mirrors and it's not just one version of somebody, a second version of somebody. We have mirrors going off into infinity, and then we've got Clara's dressing table where things are split into three. And I find it interesting, too, that it's one panel where she will see something. Like, she sees a reflection of Victoria putting the poison into her drink. And right around then, she'll see a version of herself who is dressed in orange. And I love the way that he's using color in here as a signifier. Like she's got this reddish orangish hair. Her double in the mirror has this reddish orangish dress on. And she actually will, like you're saying, hallucinate this other person. Then when she sees some oranges, she almost goes into a faint because it reminds her of that. But yeah, it's not just two of these sisters you have these multiples when it comes to all of these mirrors it appears in so many of those stories and i don't i don't know what why it just seems to be a trend that mirrors are used in the same way that that doubles are used but they're used in like i said this surreal more fantasy way where in in this often when she looks in the mirror she doesn't just see a reflection like you say she sees something else almost like a premonition a hallucination or a premonition that comes in and it seems to come more from that literary thing which Hertz was just so much into literature and painting and I think that informs a lot of his films because with this we have Klimt with 
the costumes and the and the accents of gold and everything. And I love Klimt. And he just brings all these things in together. I think because, like Ben said, his, his background is in design, it's in puppetry, it's in these more physical, artistic, like these craftsmen sort of things where he's he's not just making a film, he's making like a painting because that's his background. That's why it just stands out. Even in Hertz's films, it stands out as where at a point where he seems to be really experimenting with things and seeing how far can I go with this and what can I get away with. And obviously couldn't get away with all of it because the state hated it and, and banned him from making films for two years because they were like, this is a horror film, which the same thing happened with Beauty and the Beast. He wasn't banned then, but they were like, you said you were making a children's tale and this is a horror film, which is like, seems to be what he did with everything. <laughs> everything. They were like, hang on. And he's like, well, I thought it was romantic, which it is. It's a really romantic film, but romantic in that gothic romance sense of, of dangerous. But they didn't get that. They thought they were going to get this really sweet I mean, I don't know what they thought they were going to get, but they were horrified, which I love. I, I think it says a lot about the ineptitude of bureaucrats that oh, they don't know what they're ever going to get. The doppelganger, you know, a lot of the times in, in a lot of traditions, the doppelganger is a, you know, an omen of death or doom. So it's, it's, it certainly makes sense. But the, the, I, I noticed that there's one particular edit later in the film where they show the same shot three times. So there's that, there's not only doubling, there's that tripling as well, as you said. And it, it, it's, there's also, there, there seems to be, three of them in that there is the the white there is the the orange red and then there's the black and i i, I had like numerous notes where i was like what does red symbolize does it symbolize death no does it symbolize a bond maybe does, i was just like constantly trying to pin it down i was just like this is hurt this is like you're trying to pin it down he's just like nah this nah that but it's it's fascinating like that like you said that he's experimenting because Hurt said that the only film he ever made that was finished the way that he intended was The Cremator, and even that had the ending changed from what he originally shot. And this, basically, the film was originally meant to pretty much end halfway through with Clara discovering that there's no Victoria that it's a, you know, in Hertz's words, a schizophrenic film about a split personality. And I didn't find that out until after I'd seen it twice. When I found that out, I was like, okay, it makes more sense now because there is a certain incoherentness to a lot of the films. Like there are a lot of things that feel like they're dropped as metaphors and symbols that then go nowhere. That makes sense when you realize that, well, well, if they basically said, no, you can't make the film he made, he had to take the original story and then continue on making it without the twist. Yeah, I've got this quote from an interview that he gave to Kino Eye, um, where it says, uh, where the film ends should have been just halfway through. In the middle of the original story, the good sister wakes up and she asks for her sister, but they tell her that she doesn't have one. It should have been a schizophrenic story about a person who has a good and also a bad side. The administration couldn't accept that, and they got rid of the whole second part of the story. And he also said that, I didn't like the film, and the shooting was very arduous too. I took it as an exercise, like when a pianist does finger exercises. 
I also had the possibility to try different film tricks, like when actress Iva Yanzarova plays opposite herself. So it was really more an exercise for myself than that I would expect it would develop into something interesting. So the came so much came and you know and won more awards internationally was a surprise to him but it, you're absolutely right cat like that he is experimenting you can see that there isn't it's, it's it actually reminded me of um the mario bava film um five dollars for an august moon which is not a particularly great film but bava hated that film and so he basically you can if you know that he hated that making that film you can see that he's just trying out tricks that he would then use to much greater effect in later films. This definitely worked out a lot better than Five Dollars for an August Moon, which is, you know, okay, uh, Giallo. But there is that sense of experimentation and incoherency, which actually does feed into the film and feed into what's going on. As much as I would have loved the the split aspect, you know, that, that, that's a twist that's almost, it is old now. Uh, it was old. It was clearly, this film is 1972 and they were using it. That incoherency, in a way, it feels like it makes the film feel like it's missing something, but it becomes a kind of question in itself where it leaves you at the end going like, what was that? What just happened? Like where, like you, yeah, you get the little bits of like, there's a little bit of Poe in there and there's a little bit of, you know, as you said, all the Russian literature and there's all these other different bits and pieces. They're all, I don't even want to say mingling. I want to say mangling together. Like they're all climbing over each other going, no, this is my meaning. No, this is my meaning. Until the end, it's like, no, actually you made a, quotation marks, schizophrenic film because it has just chaos pouring out of it. <laughs> yeah, it really reminded me of the, I can't remember if it was the second or third chapter of Trilogy of Terror. I think it was, uh, I can't remember if it was Nolan or Matheson, but Millicent and Therese, the two characters that Karen Black was playing that end up being the same woman. I was thinking that that might happen in this. I hadn't read that interview, though, so that's very interesting because I was like, okay, it seems like this might happen, but then it carries on. And that it carries on and that there's actually a happy ending, I really did not expect there to be a happy ending to this movie. Well, that's actually like one of the hilarious things that I found that out. I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense because um, Peter Sapak, who, who briefly appears as the man who's reading out the will and then tries a very self-serving attempt to get uh, uh, Clara to marry him while Victoria looks on. After seeing him, I think I, I watched Oil Lamps just before I watched Morgiana, and in Oil Lamps he plays a very deceitful, syphilitic asshole. And he does it so well that as soon as this film opened and he started cracking on her, I'm like, oh, here we go again. It was like, Peter Serpak, is he just going to like, he just wants you for your money, lady. Just run as far as you can. And then in the second half, he's off like trying to find the Clara's other suitor. And you think, oh, it's on. Like this guy's going to, he's just like, that's all he wants. He's going to go and fight this. And he's like, oh no, she's missing. I think we should go and look for her. And you're like, oh. He's a good guy. This is the real twist of the film. It's like at least the second biggest twist of the film, the Peter Sepax character, is ethical. Trust me, I'm a lawyer. I think with Herzog, you have to remember, he didn't come out of film school. He didn't come out of FAMU. So he seemed to have this very pragmatic approach to making film that he said, like you said, he saw everything as a way of experimenting or learning. He had like a very positive attitude. If something was going tits up, 
he didn't have that sense of ego of how dare you touch my vision. He'd just be like, well, this is going tits out. We're a bit limited. So actually, I'm just going to have some fun with this. I'm going to try out some more fish eyes. I'm going to experiment with these effects. And I'm just going to, you know, because he said in one of the interviews that he kept his hand in just to remember how to make film. He's self-taught, basically. And so every single one of his projects almost seems like an experiment in that way. So he never had this sense of, you know, they took my vision from me, which you find in the more kind of auteur type directors. He's all kind of like, yeah, they fuck with it. But, you know, I had fun. I, I got these lenses in. I got Kachura in to do this. And we, yeah, we just did this and it was great. We tried to experiment with filming the actress in two shots and that was took ages. And so just this almost playfulness that you find within him that he, you know, despite what happened to him, he never turned out bitter. And he had this like very matter of fact, pragmatic attitude. Whereas I know people like Vera Hitilova, she felt very bitter, very angry and frustrated about uh, how she felt she'd been treated, which was fair enough. I mean, she was treated badly. But with Hertz, it never seemed to affect him. Obviously affected him on some level, but he just kept going with this. Oh, I'll just try this then, or, you know, I'll sign up for a fantasy film, but I'll actually make it into a horror. You know, he had this almost like cheeky sort of outlook. It always seemed, if you see him in interviews, just like amused with what he'd done. In watching his films and trying to think about it from an auteurist perspective, the only thing I could really definitively pin down matches exactly what you're saying, and it's an awareness of the cycle of life and a, and a, a, a weird, uncannily objective awareness of it. And I think of all the films that most pinned that down for me was the very underseen um, a, a Day for My Love which is about a, you know, a, a, a husband and wife who have a child and the child gets ill and dies. So, uh, so sad, that film. But it's so bright. It's the opposite of all the other films. It's so light and airy and it feels like a breath of fresh air after his other films. Also set in... In present time, yeah. reality in a present time. It looks like one of those other... Any other sort of Czech or Soviet era, late 70s drama where people live in a concrete block of, block of flats so different to everything else he'd made up until that point and then he goes and makes ferret vampire you can never like i think the great thing about hertz is when people start watching his films and this was definitely the same for me is every single one just takes you to a completely different place and you never know what you can expect in that place it's a, every single one is is different but then it's familiar as well because he had these ongoing obsessions with certain themes i think it was that cyclic nature it's like it even in ferret vampire it's there as a kind of acceptance you know in those final moments uh, it's there's an acceptance to people's decision to follow their fate and there's an acceptance to choose i don't know if either of you have seen the night overtake me but no i haven't that was the film that he made in the 80s, which is about his experience in the concentration camp. It's not set, it's not, it isn't about a young boy, it's told from a woman's perspective. But it's very much about his experience and things that he saw 
And I think if you see that film, which he says or claims that Steven Spielberg ripped off. I believe and that. And <laughs> there are similarities, put it that way. But he was like, I didn't have no money to take Hollywood to court. So, uh, and these were my stories. I think if you see that film, then you, you understand him. It's the only film really that you, you see any of hurts, like what happened to him, what he went through, because there are really chilling scenes in that film. When you were talking earlier about the, the lack of like a really like traditional, what I've say, what the West thinks of as a traditional horror film, I remember a long time ago reading an article about Indian and Hindu horror cinema and how little there was until relatively recently. One of the points they made was that they thought that this was partly because the Hindus lived with so much fantastical monstrosities and gods and things in their kind of their present lives, like all around them, that they didn't need that kind of outlet or escapism or whatever horror offered. Maybe like there's, I, I couldn't couldn't necessarily speak to whether that's true or not. It was just something I read in an article. But I think when you have, you know, even even Roman Polanski, like he he made plenty of films like Uri Hertz that could be described as horror films, but aren't necessarily horror films. And I think when you, when you've gone through that real horror, then there's no point in trying to fantasize it. They just came from such a such a horrible pit. Like they've just seen such terrible things. End of the Soviet era, anyway. They would have never have allowed horror films in the driving. That would have been way too fucking frivolous. They would have just bested again. They didn't have that commercial sense of cinema like we did in the West. So there was no framework for it. But they did have an obsession with fantasy and fairy tales. And they had lived through just horrific experiences. So it comes out as a form of horror. Zhuowski was the same. Roman Polanski was the same. It's a very Eastern European thing that they wouldn't make something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre because they didn't need to. So what you get, and I think Hertz is the one that comes the closest to somebody who was conscious of what he was doing. He was definitely conscious that he wanted to scare people. He wasn't taking American and British films and using them as a model. He was using things that he knew. He was using fairy tales, which were scary, pieces of literature, which were scary. He didn't have to borrow anything. And so he kind of sets that precedent in the Czechoslovak. I mean, because there's barely anything that could qualify as horror but the other thing is Brinich in The Fifth Horseman is Fear. Brinich was his mentor, and that is something that comes close to a horror film. So there's also that influence as well. He seemed to be the one that seemed more self-aware and conscious of what he was doing and quite proud. Like, he was quite proud that kids ran out of the cinema crying after beating the beast. He was really proud of that, which I love. And he was just like, oops. But he knew what he was doing. And he, he was doing it very, with a lot of wink. And, oh, sorry, that I, I, I thought it was something else. And it's like, no, you wanted those kids to cry. In my watchings and my viewings, I'm just like, we missed out on one of the 20th century's great 
pervert slaughtermasters because in there's so many he said like in you know the the sign of the cancer or sign of the crab uh his first film there was a lot of nudity cut out in a rape scene um the the limping devil or the lame devil there was meant to be much more eroticism of people going sexually mad because of this promiscuous devil affecting them um in the cremator you know there's a great deal of nudity in all these images of photos and things it's just like time and again he was had all this extra sex and violence that he wanted in his films and they were just like nah 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 and even ferret vampires like i would i it's probably doesn't exist anymore but he did shoot a lot more nastiness and violence in ferret vampire which I'm can only imagine what that is because the one scene of really graphic violence in there makes anything in Videodrome look like, yeah, yeah, that's comparable. That's comparable. And four years before it, he, he was definitely like, he was, uh, excuse my friends, a fucked up dude who was willing to go to really, really nasty, weird places. And even when he, you know, after the, the troubles he had in the, 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 the coming of the Russians, he went to, um, the, the, Slovak, I think, television to make uh, Sweet Games of Late Summer. And watching that, I was like, this makes most of the erotic cinema of Europe for, like, the late 70s look tame and bland. Like, it's so very in your face with the sexuality. It's basically about a girl who takes five lovers and it's... It's such a beautiful. It's yeah, it, it is really beautiful. But the the the, the eroticism is it is, is is off the charts, especially compared to nowadays. And I mean, admittedly, most of the erotic films I've been watching lately have been released American films by Vinegar Syndrome from the seventies and eighties. So their eroticism levels are very minus. I love Vinegar Syndrome, but they're not erotic films. But he, the, the Eurohertz was like just he was on a whole different plane. I, I I just I I just wish like, we could have gotten all of those elements that he wanted to bring to the screen because he was clearly an okay person but he was not okay and I wanted to see he's not okayness on screen we seem to come from the same place as Barofchak did although he didn't go as far as Barofchak and John Roland he seemed to occupy that same place in the imagination of the weird and the erotic and and all that and it's it is a shame that he was kind of stunted in what he could do because his vision was so different from a lot of the other Czechoslovak filmmakers from that he was just very political they were very angry they wanted to make statements they wanted to kick back and Hertz was there you know gone through this terrible experience and then had found he was an outsider after this as well He's just like, I want to do my own thing. I'm just really into this. And he was cut off a lot of of the time from doing that. But he carried on. He just carried on getting away with as much as he could. One of the reasons why I respond to him so much is he does seem to belong in that same fantasy, weird, erotic horror camp that the more surreal... European directors come out of like Varian Borovchek, John Roland, definitely. And I, yeah, I definitely think that's why he's he's definitely ripe for reappraisal and rediscovery. He was using the same literature base. He was referencing the same art. You know, it definitely comes from that, like a more of an artistic somebody who hasn't uh, gone to college, gone to film school, and learnt about film and looked learnt about images through 
watching film. He didn't come from that world. He came from a world of puppets and design and pe- and Barofchek was the same with his painting, with his animation. It comes from that world where it's all to do with uh, looking at paintings, enjoying art, reading literature. And it comes from there rather than a lot of the family lot actually formally studied film, had very clear political messages. So they were experimental as well, but it's in a cinematic way. Whereas Hertz was, wasn't really looking at cinema in that way. He was just looking at it in, as a way of expression, like not in this formalized style where, you know, he was necessarily aware of the meaning of things or what you should and shouldn't do. And I think that's what I love about him because he would just plop something in if he thought it looked good. I know he said he hate after the cremator, he would have never have made it like that again, but they had that fisheye lens and they were just like, yeah, let's just use the fisheye everywhere. <laughs> and he's like, if I did it again, I'd like, oh, it is so good. But he's like, we, we did too much with the fisheye. <laughs> <laughs> as, as much as the like anarchistic Aquarian in me wants to just be like, the cremator might not be his best film. I, having rewatched it after watching nine of his films, it was just like, no, the cremator is phenomenal like that is just until you watch it today in the midst of what's going on in the world and you're like oh shit but part of me is like i i get that morgiana even though it is if there's something about it that it, like it does have that chaos that doesn't all quite click together as perfectly and beautifully as the cremator does there's so many layers to it that i go like oh but i i'm getting more and more why this is almost as good as the cremator to me and a part of it is his own experience of duality because as as i said like trying to pin him down as a filmmaker looking from an auteur perspective it's so complicated because you have this duality of the filmmaker and the communist party and it's so many times it, the, the filmmaker and the artist is complicated or neutered or censored by the Communist Party that you kind of have to watch the film as being what it is, what it might have been, what it was meant to be. It's like, it's like, you know, Zulovsky and on the Silver Globe with the missing scenes where he's walking down the street narrating what would have happened or the, the actor or whoever it was. Anyway, you, you have that kind of experience with a lot of uh, Hertz's films once you look into them and he talks about what's missing, what was meant to be, that you end up watching them as a double. You get this doppelganger version of the film, which is sort of in your mind and in front of you. And it's, it's you, so you end up with this film like Morgiana, which just becomes like, it's almost like four-dimensional, five-dimensional. It exists on so many planes across so many different ways of reading it. It almost doesn't matter what happens in it. It just is this gem that comes about because of all of these pressures pushing down on it. And you go, yep, that is something, and it is unique, and it is undeniable. Because I watch a lot of... Euro cult film, like European, like Roland being one of those sort of films. I've never looked into it that deeply, Ben, because I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> I see. No, I I so do I too. To go with it. This I do too. I, I before I love these costumes. Are and I'm I'm just very much like that. I've never looked at it that deeply, but it's a really interesting 
perspective. I, I tell people like like I'm I'm in the black tie heroin territory of cinema. I'm so far off the deep end. I love all this Euro cult stuff and strangeness and the, the more esoteric and bizarre the better. And it, so this is like but I, I can't help but like grab it like that. And ha- especially when I come back and watch it multiple times and having watched so many of his films compressed together, I think like my like slightly O C D nature looks obsessively for like those deep details that connected no it's amazing but it says a lot about me because i'm just like oh hey this is like <laughs> obviously i knew about the schizophrenic thing and i think yeah that's good you know but like you said everyone was doing that at the time it would have been more in fitting with the whole gothic thing to have the actual double as an imagination like i said about that mirror story that would have made more sense in that but the fact that a lot of it doesn't make sense and he seems to be leaving these little breadcrumbs that mean something but then they don't lead to anything so you're often thinking you know what does this mean and you start to think is clara the um, uh, being an imagination or is victoria like not real He's obviously left certain things in just because he filmed them and thought, fuck it. But the Euro cult part of me is just like, oh, hey, yeah, well, that didn't need, well, that's fine. It looked lovely. Watching this, of course, uh, I was raised by a, a, a Jungian. So my brain was like, shadow self. Oh my God. So like I dug out, I dug out my portable Jung. And if I may just drop some Jung quotes for a minute, because we have to, in regards to the shadow self, Jung wrote, while some traits peculiar to the shadow can be recognized without too much difficulty as one's own personal qualities, in this case, both insight and goodwill are unavailing because the cause of the emotion appears to lie beyond all possibility of doubt in the other person. And the effect of projection is to isolate the subject from his environment, since instead of a real relation to it, there is now only an illusionary one. Projections change the world into the replica of one's own unknown face. And it's like, that's still in the film. It's 100% still there. And that would have worked if it had finished with it just being herself as a split person between herself and her shadow shelf. But it also works with the way the film continues on now in its sort of murdery mystery mold. That there is this, like, dis- like, like I was saying before, the illusion where she's kind of, like, projecting onto others that, oh, well, you've made my life like this, so I'll kill you, or this, or that, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like... But it isolates the person and it separates the two. And it's only in those early scenes that we really get the two together. And aside from that, they're like split out almost entirely and separated. And it's only the hallucinations of the version of them in the orange red dress that seems to occasionally draw them together in the middle part of the film. Well, you talked about how schizophrenic the film is, but we also talked about how there's three images. And there are parts of this movie where I'm just like, wait a second, this doesn't seem to really fit. And it could be because of the way that the film was changed, or it just could be because Pertz wants to fuck around with this. There's the whole story of uh, Merrick, the Joseph Abram character, where he's in his own little movie for a lot of yeah. this film. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like, what is going on with this guy? Like he He's kind of the love interest, but he's barely there and then he seems to be off with his boys at this brothel and they're gambling and there are just long scenes of them playing cards together 
And, and the, the weird, extra weird thing is that the, I was getting total deja vu from the William Wilson episode of Spirits of the Dead in those scenes. There's so much like it. And William Wilson being Edgar Allan Poe's doppelganger story. But that was shot afterwards. Were they ripping off this? Was it just because of the, the costumes? I don't even know. This is like, like I said, this film just piles all these like things on like, what is this? Does it have meaning? Should it even be in this film? Who cares? <laughs> well, there are whole groups of people that exists in their own universes there's like all those women that go to the house to just walk up and down those stairs and pick flowers and then there's that other group of women who are like nymphs who just flock around and go naked swimming that one of them gets a rock just dropped on her for the hell of it (laughs) just because victoria kind of wants to see what will happen and and those people, they, they don't, none of them seem to interact. They just walk around in a strange crowd, which is great. They just, it's like, why are all these people keep going to this house to go down those stairs and look at the flowers? And then why do these other women come up who every time they see water, they have to frolic around? Because they do it in the courtyard as well, don't they? Because water represents life. Look at this. Ben's just, it's like, if you got your portable young out again. Remember, she says, it's like dead water. And I just want to, like, punch myself in the face right now. (laughs) (laughs) I also, I've got it playing in the background and there's a scene where there's a really obvious boom pole and a reflection. And that's, that's my work brain from doing post-production going, ah, no, it's fine. Don't look at it. But... Also having it play in the background where you're talking about random people who are like, which film are they in? We need to talk about the nun. Oh, yeah, that nun. The nurse? Of of all the people to have as a nurse, (laughs) it has to be a nun. And you think, who's hired this nun? And why is she here? (laughs) And why does the doctor just kind of hate her? Yeah, he's always really horrible to her. He's always shouting. He's like, this is your fault. (laughs) <laughs> so what's the London? Where's the Italian spin-off film knockoff starring her? She should just have had her own whole series of just walking through films and smiling with those eyes. Like I would watch like decades of that. Fi- oh, and I just like instead of playing in the background, and she grabs the white roses and she starts to smile, and somehow she looks more insane and evil when she smiles than when she glowers. She's incredible, and she's just this minor part. It's like, where did this come from? But it, it, she actually, she does remind me, there's, there's two characters in this that remind me a lot of a characters in the, well, like characters in the cremator. She is a lot like the, the young girl who keeps popping up in the cremator that there's that making out on the tombstones at the end, where it's just like this really hypnotic porcelain chiseled beauty who just comes in only in this, he has a much more bizarre nunsploitation flavor. But there's also the, the painting, which I guess we're meant to assume is her mother. Looks a lot like the black-haired woman that the Conmator keeps seeing, the the one played by the actress from um, Valerie in A Week of Wonders. So there's a weird parallel there between the two films, that there's these long, straight, black-haired ladies and very cheekbone-heavy porcelain women who pop up and drag the attention away from everything that's going on for moments. You've got to have a painting if it's gothic as well. You have to have a painting, the double 
You have to have the gothic painting. Why? Why does she also has the color coordinate? As you were saying, the the the, the people who frolic in water every time because you, they're not just people; they're color coordinated handmaidens. Nobody else has color coordinated handmaidens in the film, but she has these this dark, rich blue that all of her handmaidens have to wear. There is the scene, like it was mentioned before, about the breaking of the bottle as if she's trying to disavow what she's done and trying to smash this object that has led her astray is immediately followed by, I feel like, her refuting that by having her creep around and throw a rock at one of these young handmaidens and almost kill her. And, Mike, you said before, how did you put it? I, I know all the. However, it was it was brilliant. Yeah, it was totally brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But watching these total mismatch of associations, of course, like it, for those who are obsessed with serial killers, uh, it's quite well known that the Soviet Union believed that serial killers were an American problem and could not happen in the Soviet Union, which led to lots of serial killers getting super high body counts. To me, this and the Cremator are borderline serial killer films. And for me, uh, Victoria, those moments where she, uh, oh, curiosity. That's what you were saying. The, the, the curiosity of her character is how you put it. To me, maybe because I listened to too much last podcast on the left, these felt like permission moments where it's those little creeping instances where you're like, you're just going that little bit further, little bit further, little bit further closer to killing someone that she never actually really gets to the point of killing someone but she gives herself this permission of well, like oh well i'll just test out this poison oh i'll just pour a little bit of this in here oh i'll just throw this rock and it's all those kind of like it's what serial killers do where they give themselves permissions to get closer and closer to what they actually want to do which is kill someone well she's like a child isn't she sort of being because she's very cruel and that was one of the things hurts was surprised that the censor said it was a sadistic film because it it does have a lot of sadism in it wonderfully so that's a classic thing for a pervert to go is like what what this my thing's perverted what but she is like a child he's the sort of thing a kid would like pull off the wings of a fly or she seems to be like that she's not like the cremator who has got a mission, like he's got a grand plan, and then he keeps noticing that these people are in it are not aesthetically right for his vision, so he takes them out. She's not like that. Like you said, she's testing. She's like a little kid. She sees those girls playing, and she has that moment of jealousy because she sees they're beautiful and young and free, and so she throws the rock. And her reaction to it is like a kid as well, like a bit of a bully or some kid who's like, yeah, I'll teach you. Like her whole reaction to it is really childlike, which I love about that character because she's not completely evil in that way. And I think that was something that Hertz did very well. He's always quite ambiguous in his characters and she's not completely evil and she kind of wants to kill her sister, but not. Like every time she she just keeps having these moments of like oh, and <laughs> it's it's great though how she does these little experiments, I think like a child, and you just wonder like why is she never grown up and why is she like this? You do want her to get away with in the end, but you kind of also want well at least I felt personally that you want her to get caught, and having them both 
the being the twin sisters of being played by the same person complicates that because you kind of are rooting for the same person. You're kind of like, well, but I like her because I like her, but I like her because I like her. <laughs> so you're like, I, how do they both? You, you you know that one of them, you know, you know that somebody has to be sacrificed. You know that this film, especially being a gothic, they can't all come out on top. But you keep like being like ah, oh. and and I think that is part of that that yeah, like the the the. That refusal of Hertz to imbue anything with an inherent ethic that it, that it's like, no, you have to decide. You have to decide who you want to survive and win. And that is possibly like what is maybe most lost by having it not finished the way he did, that he might have been able to finish it more ambiguously with not allowing you to choose either way, but by having to have it have a resolution and such, you, it does eventually have a which way it goes. But it, you, for the most part, you do kind of like, oh, but like, like you know, Clara's fine. Clara's great. Like, she seems like a really wonderful, interesting person and she's not a bird in a gilded cage. And Victoria's fine. She's not a huntress devouring prey. Maybe she might be a wannabe serial killer, but, you know, we've all had dark nights. I love that they have dolls of one another, and she, <laughs> Victoria brings Clara a Victoria doll, and she's like, oh, I remember this. This was great. And uh, what happened to my doll? And she's like, oh, it got all torn up and the eyes ripped off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that is like, again, serial killer. <laughs> classic serial And that was before the term was even created, like classic serial killer behavior. I do want to talk about that end and just that it's Victoria's drama that ends up getting her killed. I talked about how Morgana is actually the name of the cat. And it's very strange too, that the cat quote unquote dies in the middle of this film. I, I talked about how we have all of these POV shots from her. And at one point the cat is looking up at uh, Victoria and Victoria's talking about how the cat's dead. And then we get this freeze frame of Victoria, and then we don't see the cat for the rest of the film until the very end, when it's the cat and the breeze from the window, which she, of course, says that breeze will be the death of me, that ends up being the death of her as well as Morgiana, and this whole elaborate thing she has set up where she tears the string of her pearls, and there's pearls everywhere, and she gets her handmaiden, her housekeeper, to clean this stuff up, and then she sets up this whole thing where the housekeeper will see her trying to commit suicide, but then come and rescue her. But that darn breeze caused by that darn cat end up closing the door and she ends up hanging herself and killing herself when it was supposed to be this more dramatic, look at me, I'm suffering moment. Which is wonderful. I, it, I love it. It is pretty great. <laughs> and I, again, going back to puppetry, like she ends up a marionette on a string. We didn't talk about the housekeeper because she's great. She seems to come out of some sort of Italian neorealism film. She's like this hardened working class maid who's a bit rough. He's always got a kid hanging around her. She's always like work. And it's a weird thing because you wouldn't imagine Victoria to tolerate somebody having their kid around all the time. Like the type of character she is, she's just 
she finds everything intolerable and annoying, especially if people are innocent or free or having fun. But she doesn't seem to mind that kid being around. So that housekeeper's just a really another really strange character that I loved because she you you could see her in a Deseka film out scrubbing a doorstep or doing washing in a lake, and everyone else is so the way they're dressed. You know, so grand. They've all got these, apart from this one housekeeper. He's like the washer, the wild washer woman. All the things he does with the little characters. But then he does that in a lot of his films. Like all the little characters are just really eccentric. And you find all these strange people. And you just think, oh, what is it about this person? Like, why are they like this? Why is everybody really strange? Housekeepers like that. I like, she needed a film as well. She was in another film. Yeah, I, I think the the you know that oh, that opening shot is so, we we really didn't talk about that opening shot enough when they're carrying the coffin. It's so striking and just in your face immediately as all the pallbearers carrying the coffin. Like they're just there's something about the sh- the way it's angled, the color of it, everything just is like like I get to seize into your brain. So everything in this film happens in the shadow of that coffin, which is the father's coffin. The sort of underlying narrative of this film is two sisters finding themselves in the world. Like the, the, the person who, especially at this time, the person who would have ruled over them, who would have dictated everything they did is absent. So the film is almost occurring in a vacuum. And so I think like a character like that is, you know, or you can imagine the, the, the father, uh, you know, there was his nanny or whatever kind of thing, you know, like maybe not his nanny because he would have been super old, but that kind of thing. Like there was, there was, there was more of an association with her for the father. And then for some reason that's Morgiana has kept her on. And there, it does also lead, like, as you said, like the, why has she kept her here? Because so much of this irritates her and it does humanize her character. It gives it that more nuance and detail. Um, but also like the, the, that opening shot, it's, it's a closed world, you know, where you, when you be, you look at oil lamps and you just know that oil lamps are just so restricted for the, the options and possibilities available, which is, is not what this film is about, but the coffin, you open with a coffin and there's not much more closed than that. But then immediately after the incredible credits, you get that shot with the, the mirror reflecting the mirror, the misonabim of the, what looks like eternity. But in a way, it's just as closed as the coffin because it's just a glass wall reflecting a glass wall. No one's mentioned sibling rivalry yet because I was the eldest of two and I had this spoiled brat horrid brother so i um, kind of like really get this film i'm an only child so <laughs> <laughs> yeah same here so there you go that's why we haven't mentioned it yet go for it cat my brother was was cara basically and i would have fucking poisoned him if i could go away. and you were the goth queen <laughs> and, and i was so i in a way really side with her uh nothing against cara but She's so good and so like, and she always, poor Victoria's like in the corner, you know, wants her own thing. See, now, now the truth, now the truth's coming out, Kat. Now we're, now we're getting the real reason why you love this film. <laughs> I really, I really rooted for Victoria because it's like, yeah, kill the smug sibling. Get that you, she stole all your attention. Now is your time to shine. 
have either of you given any thought to the Green Flute being the name of the other estate? It seems so that would be something from a fairy tale. Like, that seems like the name of a fairy tale, the Green Flute. I just think of, like, because it's like, 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 it the Green Fairy. It could be. I, I, for for a little bit also like uh, when the when the yeah when the the the, the suitor and his uh, soldiers go on their night of debauchery, for a minute I thought that the they 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 end up at a you know a brothel and the 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 madam of the house. For a second I thought she was also played by the lead actress. That mm. she has a very a look that sort of somewhat between the two of them, but definitely leaning towards the gothic. And and like you were saying before, it's like yeah, there's, there's this own little mini narrative, and there's there's this own this mini little story in the middle of it of this what it goes on in the the brothel that night. Oh man, yeah, this 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 film is going in so many different directions. <laughs> and you mentioned briefly the opening credits, and those credits are fucking beautiful. I wish I knew who did all that artwork. It's fantastic. Do yourself a favor if you're listening, just type in Euro Hertz credits and just watch everything because I don't, I don't, I've, as I said, watching like nine of his films, every single credit sequence was amongst the best I have ever seen ever. They are phenomenal. These aren't either shrank my one. The, 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 no, no, no. I, it's, it's only the ninth heart, which is a Spunkmeyer one. And I know the ninth heart's definitely on YouTube because I've sent it to about 20 people and gone, watch this. But like the, the, even like the day for, uh, my love and favorite vampire, they're just every single credit sequence he has is just like, this is wow. Like just, just. It's phenomenal. It's, it's, it's like there's not one that's just okay. They're all so striking, so different, and so just. I don't, it's they're absolute. Like it, it, it clearly shows what you're saying before earlier, Cat, about his passion for painting and art. Like they're just, they're, it's just. It's credit sequence. So I know with me and Mike and Sam talked about Beauty and the Beast recently. Yeah, and the same with that. The paintings, and I can't remember. Do you remember Mike? I can't remember for the life of me did the paintings for that, but they're incredible. As well, and it's the same thing here. It's that you know, like, like not not to diss all Bass or anything. Like he was great, but you you just go like, Hertz just found the the best of everyone. Like these these should absolutely be like if you had to do you know top ten best ever credit sequence, I'd be hard pressed not just to line up every Hertz film I've seen in the last week. They're really just so detailed and textured and and you know i i think especially watching a lot of you know aip 60s gothics and things and a lot of them you know they do have that kind of art aspect to them and even the giallos is it's often like paintings and stuff and you, you see the paintings and the artworks in them and you're like yeah yeah okay that, that's that's fine oh that was pretty cool yeah they're fine in in the hertz films you're like that's Amazing. <laughs> Can I get that and put it on my wall, please? <laughs> I just had a random thought. The cat. The, I don't think the cat does die, does she? 
Well, she comes back. Wow. The cat comes back. Yeah, I was going to say, I was really confused then thinking, I don't, yeah, she thinks she's dead, and then she comes back through that window. The, well, the, the, when, when, yeah. the, when the cat appears to die, they show the cat, and then they show the cat lying there turned up, looking completely dead. And I think either her or the maid says, that is the end, and it kind of freeze frames and goes to black. So you're really meant to feel like it's an end of something there and it's over. So did the cat come back at the end to, 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 to tip her over or was it the wind or ghost cat or? Well, it's like, it's like very, like you said, it's very Poe. It's very like Poe's the black cat. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is like, it's like, oh, well, you won't let me have the story that I was writing. Well, screw you guys. I'm going to throw in six different other gothic stories instead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have William Wilson at the pub. We can have the, the, bl- the black cat at the green flute, which has nothing green on it. From what I understand, Alexander Grin was very Edgar Allan Poe, the guy who wrote this. It's interesting, too, just how we talk about the communists. He had fallen out of favor. He was very popular for a while. He had fallen out of favor when Stalin was in power, and then he came back into favor after Stalin had died. And I think it was – there was an interview with Hertz where he was talking about how Grin – was so poor that he was actually hunting animals in a nearby park so that he could actually eat something. Yeah, he was hunting crows with a bow and arrow. And he just thought, because they say, why did you choose this story? So he doesn't say anything about this is telling. He doesn't say anything about the story, like what he liked about it. What he liked was Alexander Grin, the fact that he was an outsider, he'd, he'd been an outcast, he was starving. But none of that is in the film. And he doesn't actually answer the question of what he liked about Jesse and Morgiana. It just tells you that, well, Alexander Grin was shooting crows in the park and starving. It's like Nuff said. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, so I chose this story. Given that he said that it was an arduous film to make, he might have forgotten by the end of it why he wanted to make it. The only other Grin adaptation that I've ever seen is The Rat Savior from 76, which I think <gasps> is... That is a fucking excellent film. Yeah, it's... It's Yugoslavian, though, isn't it? Okay, that's what I thought, yeah. It's just wonderful. Oh, so messed just up. Just acquired that I recently. I have seen it for ages. I want to go and watch it again yeah, in- now. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but with rats. Sounds rad. Yes. <laughs> <So good. laughs> Looking at them now, and as I said, I've got this playing in the background, uh, the painted women aspect of those eyes and the makeup, I was... A little startled again mentioning um, Sweet Games of Late Summer because one of the characters in that is Goya and he's, of course, a painter and he literally paints the lead actress and she becomes a very literal painted woman completely naked, covered in paint. You know, in, in comparison to that film which was made for TV, this is an almost restrained painted women. It's a fascinating way that they're represented because we do learn that Victoria does have her own kind of facade and that her black hair is a wig, which she removes at the end before attempting to hang herself. But otherwise, their makeup never feels like a facade. It feels like them. And it matches very closely, if not exactly. Which is quite interesting because quite often when makeup is used so heavily, it is used as a facade, as a mask. But you never get the feeling that it's hiding anything. And at the end when the wig comes off, the only thing 
that you this revealed as being hidden is that Victoria has red hair as well. So there is that bond between them, which is why I was thinking is red representative of bond because it's like that Victoria is hiding her red hair. She's hiding the fact that she is exactly like her sister, that she has that connection to her. All right. Well, episode over. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. <laughs> Is there anything else? Come on. We've got a uh, – no, I've got nothing. The representation of – it's alluded to a little here. As I said, the, the, the relationship between men and women is a really consistent part of Hertz's filmography. And that it's, – it's, it sounds a bit dumb saying that because it's, it's a little really consistent part in a lot of films. And even saying, like, death is a really consistent part of his films sounds a bit daft because there's death in a lot of films. But death is really present in his films. And the relationship between men and women is also really present. And I watching The Cremator, I, I, I you know, it's not really noted in a lot of commentaries and reviews that I've seen about how much that film is about domestic violence. You know, nobody raises a hand to hit anybody. You know, he does, spoiler alert, kill all of his family. But there's that controlling aspect that is not often so addressed in relation to domestic violence. Well, the women are not allowed to... I think I've noted it on my commentary for it. The women... I had wanted to listen to your commentary to see. Yeah, they they barely have a line of dialogue. There's those looks. Those looks that know that they're not allowed to speak. But there's, there's also the, you know, like, like in, you know, oil lamps where the, the relationship between men and women is so complicated by all these social structures and requirements and duties and honors and things that those that might actually flower are never allowed to. Well, this is set, actually, Morgiana is actually set in that same time period, which is interesting. It's like he followed one after the other. And then he did the same with the Ninth Heart and Beauty and the Beast, and that they're very similar. It's more like traditional fairy tales. We didn't generally do that across the board. It's just, but it is set in that same, that turn of the century. So they still have those very Victorian values. You have the fact that Clara, they don't really take her illness seriously because the Victorians had that whole idea of women being hysterical. And if you were middle class, you were supposed to faint everywhere and lie on the chaise lounge and be very weak and hypochondriac. And so she, they think she's like one of those women because they're quite, when, oh, what could it be? Oh, I could have cancer. I could have this, you know, just when she like, li- and and she just lies in bed all the time. And they just think she's hysterical because it's like a very Victorian trope, I suppose, from that era. And I love how he uses that because then she's not really – but like no one really takes it seriously. They're like, we'll just get a nun to sit with her. And, you know, she's obviously just hysterical when she's actually being bloody poisoned. And that's like a key thing in a lot of that Victorian literature is that women don't – get believed because they're supposed to be weak and feeble and ill and have these complaints that can't really be explained in any scientific so they're always sent to their beds someone sent in to to watch them for whatever reason so it plays on that sort of period and the idea that the father's gone and these two women are now heiresses and the guys start coming out of the woodwork 
you know, they're supposed to be independent in a time when women aren't really allowed to be independent. So the whole idea is we have to marry you off now. So it does play into that. And oil lamps is set in that same little time frame as well, the end of that Victorian era. Well, it's also a, f- a fascinating opposite to sign of cancer where you have a, a female patient who is dying of cancer but the doctors won't tell her. They don't want to freak her out and disturb her with that. And so even though she is clearly unwell and disturbed and worrying, they are hiding this knowledge from her. It's the absolute opposite position. And uh, Yeah, it, it hurts constantly. He's like he's just flipping these different positions around and playing with them. And you know, there, 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 there's these films where it's fem- male centric and female centric and. Well, Night Overtake Me is set, so there's children in it, but it's set in a woman's camp. So it's his autobiography, obviously, was with his mother. It's like a woman's story, and all the characters, well, most of the characters in it, main characters are female. So that's like a very female-centric film, even though it's his most autobiographical, which is interesting. I don't think he was particularly interested in gender, though. No, no, I, I'd agree with that. He's that interested in gender. But, but you've got to think Czechoslovakia wasn't a particularly progressive country under communism. The social roles definitely interested him because I think there is that, again, going back to Sweet Games of Summer, that there's, even though there's this free, sexually liberated, sensual woman, whenever the females who are given name and characterization disappear, the men just immediately run to the the, the sex workers and they kind of wait in the wings, uh, almost <laughs> vampiric like. And that is, that, that also has an echo in this with the, the scene in the brothel that it has a similar kind of feel that it's like even, you know, the good men, they still move in the same circles as the sex workers, even if they don't partake. And there's this interesting overlapping of those kind of roles. And, and, you know, you can even see that in, in something like, um, the Ninth Heart, which even though the, the, the Ninth Heart breaks down those roles between because of the chaos and oddness of the, what is occurring, the, the, the aristocracy is inviting lesser folk into their circle. And so I think that he, he is interested in that, that the, the social roles that people play and the times at which we let down how we present them, perhaps, more so than the fixed position that we might believe they have. All right, let's go ahead and take a break and play a trailer for next week's episode, probably more like a clip. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. 
the show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. What if you owned your own drive-in? An open-air theater outside of time and space. You could show anything you want. You could pair together any movies you want. Regardless of genre. Regardless of when they were made. Regardless of quality. If you could own such a theater, if you could do whatever you wanted, you certainly wouldn't do it like this. It's like if we don't use it, you'd be like wasting my precious f***ing fluids, <laughs> my precious creative juices. Oh my god, I had to, I had to read two sentences. <laughs> Over and over. Who is this guy thinking he is? Kubrick? Fincher? <laughs> Who's this f- guy? Are you ready for me to read this, Mr. Hitchcock? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is the bird going to sh- on my shoulder in this scene, too? He's a plastic bird. He doesn't even make sh- on his own. <laughs> the All Night Drive In Picture Show. Available now at a podcatcher near you. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. Kto je to? Razum. A ten? Mudrci. Jedz. Obsahuje fosfor. Budeme ťa vidieť i v noci.
That's right. We're back next week with a look at birds, orphans, and fools. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Ben and Kat. So, Ben, what is keeping you busy down under, sir? Got a fair bit going on at the moment. Uh, anybody can find me personally at uh, Twitter on Twitter at uh, Dissolved Pet uh, D I S S O L V E D P E T one word. But with a couple of friends of mine, Ben Volchok and Steph Fellows, we've just got a podcast up and running recently, a Video Vortex Podcast, where a couple of ex uni students who wanted to get a bit back into the discourse and talk about things from our own and an Australian perspective on cinema, coming more from a cultural, history, concepts, themes, random strangeness perspective than from the films themselves. So it's a bit of a, a chaotic uh, mix of things. Uh, we're definitely within the intention. Each episode we take a, a particular topic. So we've done like national cinema and cars in film and things like that and we have a bit of an academic side, bit of a rambly side, bit of a silly side, bit of a wherever it takes us. Uh, so be sure to check that out if that sounds like something that could interest you. We, you can find us uh, videovortex.podbean.com at the moment. And it's video vortex, one word, V-I-D-E-O-V-O-R-T-E-X. Uh, we're on Twitter at Podcast Vortex. Tried to get Video Vortex, but Twitter apparently is weird with naming these days, and, well, we don't mind being a Podcast Vortex. So, one word, Podcast Vortex. Be sure to check us out and let us know what you think. Hope you enjoy it. And, Kat, what's the latest with you? So, yes, Mike, funny you should ask me that, because there's been two big developments since I was on here last. The first one is... My Daughters of Darkness book has finally been published and it's like out and it's an actual fucking thing, which I'm really happy about. And you can get that on Amazon, but ignore the stupid Kindle price. I'm told that's a mistake, $56. And then my other big thing is I've just started a Patreon, Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut. And I'm offering vlogs and blogs and essays and trailer commentaries and a film club and loads of amazing things on there that are going to be exclusive just to the Patreon. So if you want to come um, and support me on there, just go to patreon.com and put Cat Ellinger's Confessions of a Cine Slut in the search because I'm sure there's only one. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.